On this episode of Upon Upon a Hill, we're going to dive into the Constitution and the New Republic. This is part two of that topic within period three dash one notes. Here we go. important things to focus on is the way in which our country starts and begins with this Constitution and sometimes we ask questions like well why do we do that well it's just the way it's always been a lot of the way our system runs is on institutional precedents and many of them are established here during Washington's presidency they're not written into law they're just norms customs things that everybody does because that's what the person in the job before me has done. And so uh, the way in which Washington's administration and his presidency establishes the way our government acts and uh, interacts with other countries for the next hundred or so years all begins with first him organizing the federal government. Now, we talked about in the previous lecture that the primary function of the legislative branch is to make laws, and for the executive branch is to enforce laws. And, and Washington, via general, understood the importance of delegation. So he quickly appointed um, several advisors and into a group called the cabinet. And he kind of kind of broken them up into four heads or departments. So for the Secretary of State, this position handles all foreign affairs of diplomacy. He's going to ask Thomas Jefferson to help him in that regard. For Secretary of Treasury, he's going to uh, appoint Alexander Hamilton. This position deals with fiscal or monetary policies throughout the nation. The Secretary of War speaks for itself. He's going to ask Henry Knox, another wartime comrade during the Revolutionary War, to help him, as well as the Attorney General, which is the national lawyer to kind of oversee any type of uh, court cases of people suing the state. Um, he will ask Edmund Randolph to do that. And, and the second thing that's comprised over uh, the court system that you mentioned is we need to establish how it's going to function. So the federal court system is established with the Judiciary Act of 1789. We, um, the third co-equal branch of government, the Supreme Court, is given a chief justice with five associate justices. I don't see the logic of having six, but um, what they're, what's um, dictated to them is that they will rule on the constitutionality of all the state court decisions at the lower levels. It's a court that looks down to the states. It's a federal court at the top looking down. Uh, and it's a system of 13 district courts with three circuit courts of appeals. But it's not until later on where the third co-equal branch finally has the teeth in its um, power in order to dictate the checking of the power of both the executive branch and the legislative branch. And this power will be known as judicial review. We will talk about that later. Um, so as Washington kind of goes on with his administration, he kind of, we have the game set up, we have the rules set up by the Constitution, but the, the way in which to play the game is going to be mostly um, played by these key players and advisors. And Washington, being the calm uh, delegator that he was, 
will lead, um, will allow stronger personalities to kind of dictate policy. And one of the stronger personalities within his cabinet is going to be a man, man named Alexander Hamilton. And he's going to come up with a program to kind of uh, address the debt crisis that we had and we mentioned previously, uh, spurned on by the Articles of Confederation. So he wants to put a plan to make U.S. finances on a stable foundation. So it's in three parts. The first part, he wants to pay off the national debt at face value. In, in other words, pay off all the debt and all the interests that were opposed pri privy to this, the Revolutionary War and have the federal government assume the debts of the states. Yeah, the second part of his financial program is, is focusing on how to get our industry going. So he viewed the, our young nation's industry, he compared it to an infant, that you can't just throw an infant out to the wild and right. expect it to survive. So he was going to make sure that we collect adequate revenues by imposing these new high tariffs on all imported goods. A protective tariff can then help our young industries get their, uh, get their, get their feet underneath them, excuse me, and um, rise to the ability to compete on the world stage. The final and the most integral part uh, that connects to all the other two parts of his plan is creating a national bank. And that would be functioning as a depository for government funds. And it will also provide the basis for a stable United States currency. The whole primary objective of this financial plan is confidence. He wants to instill trust and confidence in the national financial system so that future lenders will be able to feel more comfortable providing more loans to the United States who will, who will then invest in other infrastructure projects. So this is all about kind of establishing the trust that is needed to, to ask for money. Well, it was similar to how we talked about um, voting rights was right. based on stakeholders. It was right. the same kind of idea is that Absolutely you correct. get the most important uh, members of society to buy into, right. literally right. buy into <laughs> our uh, new system of government, right. the more likely they're going to want to see it succeed. Um, people that are opponents of this new this financial program largely were the anti-federalists and the farmers. Those are ones that feared that more power, more central government control over them, that this would be a, a detriment to their prospects and to their economies, more of a largely agrarian society, not focused on trade as much. And they were concerned that they have a lot of debt, and the only people that are going to benefit from this plan are the rich at the expense of the poor farmers. And of course, Jefferson from Virginia is the one leading this charge. He also thought that if farmers continue to remain solely dependent on these debtors or bankers, then they're not going to be focusing on being truly independent and making decisions for their own interests. They might vote in policies in favor of uh, an upper class interest. So he was kind of worried about uh, this overreach in, in power. Now, as most of what is in our government is based on compromise, Hamilton isn't able to get all that he wants. But when Congress finally adopts the plan, he gets some tariffs, right. but they're lower than what he initially proposed. Jefferson agrees to it, but the quid pro quo, you could could say, right. or the uh, what he gets in return was that they move the United States Capitol from New York City, where it is during Washington's administration, down to where it is presently in Washington, D.C. And it's not a matter of, oh, I just like this area better. It's not just moving a house. It's the idea of keeping a closer watch on the executive branch. Because remember, this faction, the Anti-Federalists and Jefferson's camp, they are very still suspicious of a strong centralized authority, and bringing it into the southern backyard would be better for the farmers. All right, so uh, as we move on here, we want to focus on Hamilton and his argument versus Jefferson's as to whether or not this was even constitutional, right? Should, Jefferson is arguing that the Congress does not give, um, excuse me, 
Constitution does not give Congress the power to create a bank. Point it out to me. Where does it say that? And Hamilton says that the one place where it does give them that authority is what's known as the, quote, necessary and proper clause. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Yeah, very good. So um, he says that's basically giving Congress license to do whatever they feel is necessary to exercise their powers to do what is best for their citizens. And from this debate comes a long-standing uh, debate that we still have today within our court system, mm -hmm. the interpretation of the Constitution. So what would be better to, how do we how do we handle or interact with this document? Are we going to have a more strict interpretation, going by the rules, going word for word, um, or are we going to have more of a loose interpretation, kind of using the, 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 the principles as general guidelines and kind of a... Uh, you know, forming it on the basis of our current context. So people that want strict interpretation are going to be inside of Jefferson, or they're going to have a, a Jeffersonian view on this, a Hamiltonian view, or people on the Hamilton side will be more of a loose uh, construction. Of yeah, and these two camps that develop further encourage the divide between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, right. and you start to see during the Washington administration right. the entrenchment of two political right. parties. Washington did not want this to right. happen. He spoke out at the end of his administration, but also during, about he didn't want these factions to be created. Right. And one of the, what this does is this argument specifically, as well as the previous argument, it. exactly, as well as the previous one on, on federalism uh, and ratifying, um, this is what really sets in stone the two ideologies that create the original political parties in our system. Please note that anti-federalists and federalists are not necessarily official political parties, but they're the embryonic stages of what would later become the political parties. Yeah, so the final um, say in whether or not this plan goes, gets uh, carried through is whether or not Washington is going to veto it or not. Right. It ultimately falls on his desk, and he decides to support Hamilton, uh, who he had appointed to that position, and it is then voted and adopted into law. All right? So that is crucial to understand um, those decisions during that time period in creating that national bank set a precedent for how our government debates the Constitution going forward. Okay, another thing that is important to um, address is how Washington viewed our foreign affairs and how important that is to um, the future of our country. And another country that kind of saw our revolution and actually took part in our own revolution was inspired by the principles of liberty, democracy, and justice for all, and they tried to apply it in their own country. And this country, of course, was France. Mm -hmm. At the time, um, there was a very um, rigid and very tyrannical uh, monarchy with an aristocratic class that kind of put the people at, uh, at an exploitive uh, status, and a lot of these people uprose, up and then they created a revolution of their own, to the point where um, they were under the principles of liberty, but they kind of took a turn for the worse. So a lot, some of the some of the factions within the revolution started to execute aristocrats and execute even the monarchy and eventually the queen herself. So this idea of where does the United States stand in support of France? Because if you think about it, France helped uh, the, the Americans. It makes logical sense for us to at least tacitly endorse this movement. Yeah, so Jefferson was really the leader. Many of the anti-federalists were those that were speaking out on behalf of the principle, out of principle, and right. because of fighting for liberty, as you mentioned, right. these are the reasons why we need to stand with France. Right. Um, detractors, people that were against it, saying that they were really horrified by those reports that you said. The mob hysteria, as you see in the notes, and mass executions. Um, you know, I remember thinking about the fact that Hamilton even said, you know, our allegiance wasn't with the people of France, right. our allegiance was with the crown, and that crown has been beheaded. So if uh, we have a new ruler, then that um, relationship has been voided. But at the same time, to Jefferson's point, who would be, we be as a nation if we just 
left the war fighting a monarch to only then support the reentrenchment of a monarch in another country. So it yeah. seems hypocritical. So you can understand that this, like the, the, that the financial bank, is another thing that kind of exacerbates the tension between these two embryonic uh, factions. Yeah, in previous podcasts you mentioned how some there's much... Uh, United States history, we have a lot of schizophrenia in our system right. of, you know, it seems like logical that we would progress this way, but then there are points like this right. one where, well, you know. What, what do we decide? Yeah, so sometimes our interests versus what is right, what is just. So are we consistent or are we consistently inconsistent? And that's sometimes what we're going to see. So what this all leads to is a proclamation of neutrality by Washington. And that is in 1793. He says that our nation is not prepared. We are not ready for a major European war. We are too young. We are not financially stable enough. And, you know, how can we get, get a, enough support from our people that have just overcome uh, a difficult 10 years in the first years and of our And politically country. speaking, when you're neutral, you're not necessarily endorsing or rejecting the conflict. So it, it, in a way, it was a perfect uh, method to kind of sidestep this issue for Washington. Yeah, one of the great things about staying neutral is you can still sell to both sides. However, as we will learn later on in this lecture, being neutral is what uh, one of the many things that kind of got us into a quagmire later on in the War of 1812, and we'll discuss that later. Yeah, so... Um, Following the proclamation of neutrality, Jay's Treaty in 1794 is also a concern because Britain has been um, abusing their power over United States ships. This term impressment is what we're going to be using to describe the act of them searching United States ships and taking our um, sailors for their British Navy. And keep in mind, if we just a year before declared neutrality, it kind of signals to England that they don't know if they can completely trust us, too. Because keep in mind, England had a stake in maintaining the monarchy in mm -hmm. France. So not only that they just lost the war to us, but now we're kind of declaring neutrality. They're just going to view this as justification of kind of like... Um, stomping on the Treaty of Paris, an agreement or originally uh, agreed upon in our revolution. So yeah. this is the context in which Brit British is kind of going to violate our maritime rights. Yeah, so that conflict really, it leads to the British agreeing to evacuate some of their posts on right. the western frontier, but there's no mention of what they're doing on the open seas. So um, it really just delays and pushes this conflict down the road to when we it culminates with the War of 1812. All right, so... Um, Lastly, with the foreign affairs, we're going to touch on what's known as Pinckney's Treaty, which was really an unexpected effect of Jay's. So with the British vacating that space in the, along the Mississippi, the, the Spanish tried to take hold there as well. Spanish, the Spanish will agree upon lowering uh, Mississippi River and allowing access for American merchant ships to go through, and as well as New Orleans, um, to American trade. Americans will then transfer cargo to New Orleans without paying duties. So it will be a big win for American merchants as well as the farmers that rely on this uh, highway to uh, export their goods as long as Americans accept the U.S. claim of Florida's northern border, uh, which is the 31st parallel that Spain has. All right, so um, after we touch on the foreign affairs, we have to come back home and that we're going to touch on uh, the domestic concerns. Then primarily the uh, Amerindians that are resisting the movement west from our settlers throughout our history on the North American continent, that continues. So one of the things that is, is happening is our population grows. We are creeping ever more west. Right. And what the tribes create is known as the Northwest Confederacy. So the Americans are concerned because of the fact that 
we think and we suspect accurately that the British are supplying many of these American Indians with arms and weapons to defend themselves and kind of instigate on the frontier. So what uh, in the first action of, as a united army during this new constitution, the United States Army actually defeats several Confederacy tribes and they surrender the claims to Ohio, which opens it up to settlement. Another event that kind of showcases the might or the legitimacy of the United States Federal Army is this idea of the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794. The context is when Hamilton persuades Congress to pass an excise tax on whiskey to kind of uh, gain more finances for his uh, ultimate plan, farmers in western Pennsylvania will refuse to pay this. Um, they're going to defend uh, what they see as their liberties being attacked by revenue collectors, and they're going to kind of start um, congregating to form and like uh, fight against this un this heavy burden of taxes. Yeah, this is one of the very important uh, immediate challenges to our new country because this is what really uh, ruined the Articles of Confederation: right. the inability of the federal government to impose taxes on their states and then enforce them. Enforce them exactly because of the lack of an executive branch. Right. So, with the president here, it is his job as the executive to determine how to act, and so how he reacts to the re the rebellious act of refusing to pay taxes really sets an important precedent of what the government is willing to do to get their money. And this is kind of uh, hard for Washington because in many in many cases Washington was the general that led these men against England. So he wants to kind of enforce the tax but he doesn't also want to show bloodshed. So what he does is he's going to federalize 15,000 militiamen under his command and he uh, commissions this command to Hamilton and he's going to show a force and this show of force will have an intended effect. It's going to collapse the rebellion with almost no bloodshed. So we're able to show uh, the folly of Pennsylvanian uh, whiskey farmers uh, that there's no sense in rebelling against uh, the, this country or this federal government. So as we continue west, the more domestic concerns really decide upon how are we going to divvy up this land. Um, you know, we need some type of regulation or formula to determine who gets what, where, and, and what land is for what use. So the Public Land Act of 1796 is where co Congress really encourages rapid settlement by establishing these procedures to divide and actually sell out federal lands at reasonable prices for these new settlements. As a result of the Public Land Act, there's going to be new states added to the Union. The process will be set forth in the constitutional works. In 1791, you had the introduction to Vermont, 1792, K Kentucky, followed by Tennessee in 1796. So as previously mentioned, the political parties that develop under Washington's administration are crucial to understanding American um, government history and really the politics that play out early on. So they're not mentioned in the Constitution and the debates in terms of ideologies that the Federalists and Anti-Federalists have are really the first indication of the presence of this two-party system. Nowhere in our, in our laws does it say there must be two parties, but really this two-party system emerges and it's a core and it's the feature of our American politics. So the framers believe that these things would be temporary and they weren't too concerned. They thought that people would be arguing on their individual beliefs and issues would change uh, whether you would vote on one side with this group or on the other side with another group, and that policies would determine your um, track record. But what ends up happening is they become two different groups that almost become hom homogeneous in their thinking, uh, hom homogeneous in their thinking. And so that's one of the things that uh, leads to this system. And as mentioned before, in the 1790s, uh, in the Federalist era, that's what we call the 1790s, the political parties will be forming along, along two large, uh, very prominent figures, Hamilton for Federalists, Jefferson with the Democratic Republicans. So the Federalists 
are going to be those who support Hamilton and his financial plan. They tend to be uh, bankers, merchants. They're going to be people that really uh, are pro-centralized government to kind of protect their interests, pro-tariff, uh, to protect uh, uh, you know domestic manufacturing. Um, alternatively, Dem Democratic Republicans are going to support Jefferson. They're going to want to elect candidates that oppose, obviously, Hamilton's plan, as well as they're going to put more of an emphasis on state governments, allowing the people kind of to decide and dictate their policies as need be. Um, and as we mentioned before, the French Revolution is going to further solidify the formation of national political parties by kind of having people choose between uh, to, to the, their side in, in this decision. So as Washington's presidency ends, what he decides to do is um, give a farewell address. And one of the things to mention is why it ended, right? So we mentioned earlier, there's nothing set in stone that at two term, two, at the end of uh, the completion of two four-year terms, that the president has to step down. But Washington believed that it would be the best thing for the country. Um, he decides two terms is enough, the country needs to move along, and that if another person takes the helm, it will show that it's our institutions and our government and our constitution, the rule of law that represents the country. It's, we're not, we are bigger than any one individual. That was his goal. So with um, the assistance of Hamilton, he writes his farewell address, and it really is an incredible amount of influence on the future of our country in terms of foreign affairs. So he spoke, spoke about policies and practices that he considered to be unwise, advice for the country, and he warned Americans in four specific areas. One, not to get involved in European affairs or entangled in European affairs. Not to make permanent alliances in foreign affairs, which is something we held all the way up until 1949. Not to form political parties. He saw the infighting that it was creating at that point and was concerned about what would happen going forward. And not to fall into sectionalism, get concerned with North versus South or East versus West, is that we, we should all be thinking about where our personal, in, um, how we are personally invested in this country as a whole. So all of these things are really important because they establish those precedents that we were talking about and they follow our country. Every president since then has followed these um, without varying, but for a few specific circumstances. There's a couple of questions to keep in mind as we go forward is, was the two-party system that has become entrenched in our society inevitable? And think about that, and think about the two figures that kind of had the decisions to, to kind of either create this mess or not. So it's something interesting that we kind of just take for granted, but these this is what historians do today, kind of going back and being like, what are some of the things that could have changed? What could have been? Um, and we encourage you to be thinking like this throughout uh, the year. Okay, so as Washington ends his term, he leaves on a two-term, and he does that. Uh, one of the precedents that he establishes is the idea of the gentleman leader. There is an emperor in Roman times called Emperor Cincinnati, and according to history, he was known to have rose to the rank of emperor, raise an army, destroy an enemy, run uh, the country and his policies, and return back to his farmer status within 15 days. Washington really appreciated this man and idolized him. And very much like the Roman ideal, Washington wanted to retire after two terms. And since then, no one except FDR is going to break this precedent. Again, not written, but something that is a norm that is established. John Adams becomes the second president, and he kind of has big shoes to fill. He does not match the prestige or the, 
the credibility that Washington had. Or even the persona. Right. Or the stature. You're right. And he's one of the shortest presidents we've had. And it's not to say that Adams was a slouch or he did not have talents. In fact, a lot of people recognized his uh, his brilliance in legality. He was, if you don't uh, recall, one of the people that defended the British during the Boston Massacre. Not because he allied himself with England, but because he believed in law and order. And he was a brilliant man in terms of moderation. So he inherits this kind of mess where the, the formation of parties start to become more distinct and more rigid. So he, I would like to say that he's going to be the first president that has to deal or handle the partisanry and the, 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 the smear campaigns that we, we get to see in other presidencies. Washington kind of was able to avoid this. And we see this very quickly in the election of 1796. Federalists, of course, will choose John Adams. The Democratic Republicans will choose Thomas Jefferson. The problem is the second place winner will inevitably become the vice presidential candidate. Now you can understand the problems with that, especially when there's two party systems. So you have a president as a Federalist and you have a, a vice president as a Democratic Republican. Yeah, it's just a situation where it makes it difficult to govern, right. but they didn't logically think of the idea of a vice president as a running mate until much later right. on. Right. So it's really something that we address later with the 12th Amendment. So. The first controversy of John Adams' presidency, and it's going to be a presidency littered with con controversy, right. is known as the XYZ Affair. So in seeking a peaceful settlement over some of the abuses of the French, the warships were harassing the United States merchant ships. Um, the United States sent a delegation of ministers, um, and uh, or, or think of it as uh, delegates with good, good looking to communicate and come to some type of agreement with the French. Well, there are three French ministers that were not named, X, Y, and Z, they're referred to as, and they request bribes as just a basis for negotiating. Before they even step in the room, they say, well, you need to pay us first. The American delegates refuse. And so the reports of this infuriate many Americans, and many Americans are calling for a war with France. It may seem overblown, but it's, it seems disrespectful that we would travel all the way across right. the Atlantic to meet with you to talk about these issues we have between one another, and you're not even going to sit down with us unless we pay some ridiculous bribes. So Adams resisted the urge to go to war that was rising from the populace, and because of that, He's, and he was right in this fact that we weren't quite ready for war. Right. He just sent new ministers. So he's perceived and his political opponents depict him as weak right. and that he's being pushed around by the French. Right. And this is something that he really resents. Um, and he's somebody who was always a little bit sensitive of how he was perceived right. in the public eye. Absolutely. And that really motivates how he acts. And, and that's what we see in the next element and, of what he does. Keep in mind, um, he's angering people within his own party. He's keeping the line of Washington. Washington was the one who created neutrality. But yeah. it's because of Adams keeping up with Washington, he is now going to be accused of being weak and kind of capitulating to a foreign power. So uh, because of Adams' uh, loss of reputation within his own party, he's going to be pressured by other Federalists within Congress to pass what we now know as the Alien and Sedition Acts. And these are going to be tactics by the Federalists to retain political power and restrict their opponents. This is what's happening in practice. In theory, it was designed to kind of stop foreign influence in our country from kind of supporting the French at a time where people were really upset since the XYZ affair. Um, they passed a series within these laws, one in which is called the Naturalization Act. It's going to increase the residency requirement for citizenship from five years to 14 years. Alien acts are going to authorize the president to deport aliens or any immigrants, undocumented immigrants, considered dangerous. 
yeah, one of the things to, uh, to think about here is the motivation for this, right? right. You mentioned that right. it's, it's about foreign influence, but Adams is also, and politicians are always thinking about getting reelected. Right. So in his mind, with the popular um, sentiment being an anti-Adams sentiment after his perceived weakness, right. he's concerned about all these people influencing the electorate. Right. All right, so by passing the Alien and Sedition Acts, what he's hoping to do is either get rid of people who could be voting in the next election right. or make it harder for anybody who's newcomer who maybe be more likely to side with the French um, and require them to be citizens nine years more down the road when he's already been elected. Typically speaking, a lot of people coming from this country um, were going to be Democratic Republicans chiefly because they're not going to be part of the merchant class. Exactly. They're going to be of a lower stature and more likely to kind of defend the principles of civil liberties and state right government. The, the demographics of the time perceived that all these newcomers, all these new immigrants, just happen to their personal views align with the Democratic Republicans who are much more likely to be that. And th that brings us to what's also the more sinister aspect right. of uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts is the specific sedition part of it. So the Sedition Acts make it illegal for a newspaper editor to criticize the president or Congress. See, Adams perceived the press was to blame for the American public having a negative view of him. Right. So if you make it illegal for the press to say something negative about you, even if it's true, right. that will help his public opinion. Right. That will help change his stature. The, change the optics. Change everything on. about his possibilities of being reelected. So what they would do is they would impose fines or imprisonment for any of these violators. So you're going to see a lot of journalists and a lot of people publishing newspapers being a lot more cautious. This is an opposite of the Zenger trial right. precedent. This is a pushback against an inherent freedom. But it's not as easy as saying, oh, wow, Adams is becoming tyrannical, because you can, you can take a look at it from that viewpoint. But from another vantage point, there's, a, there's political instability happening. And, you know, it, it, we don't know if Adams is going to get reelected or Adams doesn't know he's going to get reelected. So Adams, being a man of law and order, wants to impose that to make sure that he can stabilize this nation. However, there are also other elements in the Federalist Party that want to use that as a reason to target their political enemies. Yes. So there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of layers. Nothing in this course is going to be simple black and white. And, yeah. and as historians, we got to learn to uncover all those layers. Yes. And, and as you mentioned earlier, like the, the framers and the founders are concerned of mob rule. Right. Too much democracy it, is, a little, is a little out of hand. You're right. So we saw what happened in France with the mob rule. You're right. We don't want to go down that track. So keep that in mind. It's like in, in the minds of the Federalists and the John Adams is, yes, we want to um, we want to kind of tame the masses. We want to control right. things, stabilize our society right now. We're a little too volatile. And then some of them also wanted to make sure that it also helped them stay in power. So it's a little bit of both, as you mentioned. Right. So um, the next step in John Adams' presidency that is noteworthy is what's known as the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. So part of it is a pushback an anonymous pushback by the Democratic Republicans. They are arguing that the Alien and Sedition Acts violate the First Amendment, okay? Remember, we do not have that term judicial review that you mentioned earlier. That doesn't come for another few right. years. So the Democratic Republicans are challenging the legislation, and what they try and do, they try and create this system. Well, if the federal government establishes something, maybe the states, are. it's on them to create laws that nullify that federal law. So they enact what's known as nullifying laws in several state legislatures. That creates the precedent of state governments being able to reject or veto laws that are passed by the federal government. So Jefferson and Mad Madison uh, ghostwrite resolutions for the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions respectively, and they're go both are going to declare that states will enter into a compact 
informing the national government. So that's the basis of rejection. It's not just rejecting because they're pouting like little children. Their theoretical argument is, well, it took the states to ratify the Constitution, and if we had that power to actually make the federal government exist, we also have retained the power to reject any laws that we, we view as unfit. Yeah, the, the, the logic was once the federal government breaks that compact or agreement, that's when they have the right to do it. And that's, that's something that was a little bit you know, unclear early on. So they were the only two states to nullify, but this is an important thing because it sets forth an argument that we mentioned and this rationale to use nullification, which comes back later on in the 1830s, which is known as the nullification crisis. The Federalist era is all about precedent, as we mentioned in the Washington administration. This too is a legal precedent that to keep in mind. Right, so the conclusion of Adams' administration, riddled with controversy and turmoil, um, ends with the election of 1800. So he is running opposed to the man Thomas Jefferson once again. He has to beat his own vice president, runs against him. It's a very unique situation. So um, the Federalists are swept from power. The results of this is that the, the public sentiment we spoke about really resulted in Democratic Republicans being elected in Congress and throughout the... Um, throughout the country. So both executive and legislative branches, the majority of electors vote for two Democratic Republicans though. So remember, the electoral college becomes complicated. The top two vote getters back then, every elector got two votes. They've cleaned it up since then because there were too many ties happening. Right. So all these electors were able to vote for, you couldn't say two votes for Jefferson, please. You could say, all right, I'm a Democratic Republican, I'm gonna vote for Jefferson and I'll vote for Aaron Burr as well. So even though the Democratic Republicans overwhelmingly win the election and Jefferson, uh, excuse me, Adams is no longer in the, the running, it becomes an electoral tie in the, um, because of the Electoral College. So the logistics in, to, in determining who the president will be is that the House of Representatives holds a special election. What's interesting about this is that um, part of the Constitution uh, specifies that in the event of a tie, the House of Representatives gets to vote to do the tie break. At this point, the Federalists are still in control of the House. Yeah, so what's unique right is that... Right after the election, they, the, the results don't have until inauguration. The Federalists are in charge of a House, and they have to determine which of the two political opponents that they want. Jefferson, who is basically ostensibly the leader of the Democratic Republicans, or Aaron Burr, who's also a, a go-getter in the Democratic Republican Party as well. What is interesting is, in a stunning case of irony, Hamilton is going to urge his followers to vote for Jefferson, his longtime political rival because he viewed Jefferson as less dangerous and more of a higher character than Aaron Burr. This is partly due with an individual feud that was developed between Burr and Hamilton, but also partly because at this time, despite the partisanry and the smear campaigns that's going on back and forth between the parties, Hamilton and Jefferson both recognized the intelligence and the positions that they both had. They had a respect for each other in terms of character. Yeah, that respect that you speak of is crucial because what Hamilton says is, Aaron Burr, I just view him as a politician looking right. to get ahead. Right. He is he is a careerist. Right. He is Career not some politician. he is not somebody who's interested in the law as you mentioned uh, before. You know, he's not like Adams that really is 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 uh, focused on right and wrong. On he principles. Just, yeah, he he doesn't have them. So that's what what Hamilton argued was 
even though I disagree with Jefferson in almost everything, I know he stands for something. Right. And that those principles that you mentioned are important. We need a leader that has principles, not somebody who will waffle. So that is why he encourages all the other Federalists in the House of Representatives to vote for Jefferson instead of Burr. And good thing he did, because later on, historians will find out that Aaron Burr uh, will be very much in trouble for trying to launch a conspiracy to defect away from the United States and form a nation on his own. So it's just a really interesting thing in which we find that the character really also has a factor in determining who should be president of the United States. Now, the reason why this election of 1800 is so crucial is that around the world, when election time comes around, it's not as simple as we make it as our country sometimes. Um, we take for granted that we transfer power from one political party or one entity or one group to another peacefully. And one of the things you see in other countries, even in modern times, is there's an election, a ruler is, is voted out of office, and they refuse to leave. And they command the military to help protect them. So revolutions start because of this. Right. This is known as the peaceful or the bloodless revolution because it's a peaceful transfer of the power from one political party to another. And this is another tradition, a norm, a custom in our society that we are very proud of. Uh, regardless of who you want to win any election, every American should be proud on Inauguration Day for an executive right. because... We are one of the um, countries that is able to do this successfully um, throughout our 230 plus year history. Uh, it's now a situation that other countries try to emulate, but we have had a, done a very good job of this despite a few instances of ties and controversies and recounts and other aspects. But this is one thing above all else that is very uh, rare around the country. So it's also especially rare for the times then in, in the 1800s. So it's a major in indication to the rest of the world that our constitutional system will endure. Little feuds like this are not going to tear us apart. We're not going to break into another right. civil war. Um, the Federalists quietly accept defeat, peacefully relinquish control of the federal government, and the Dem Democratic Republicans emerge to power. What you can do to challenge this notion of a peaceful revolution is keep in mind, who are the people that are able to vote and able to hold office. As we've mentioned before, the demographics are white male land holding property class. So the, the disputes that they have, albeit really legitimate and real, are not going to be as distinct and threatening between other interests of other social classes. And that's when the co country starts to become more turbulent when you start to allow different interests to happen, which is part of the reason why democracy is a wonderful thing. How do you manage to invite other people with different interests to engage in a dialogue with people with other interests? At this point, it's still a white old dude's club. So mm -hmm. the fighting that they have is real, but it's not as radical as... First world problems. Right, it's first world problems. So just keep that in mind when we talk about in the 1830s when in the age of Jackson when the, the common man, this idea yes. of the common man starts to come. And as, as we see the right. evolution, voting rights expanded, right. suffrage expanded to more and more groups, um, we see the difficulties in galvanizing the country uh, politically right. expand. And that leads us to the Civil War. It leads us to other right. turmoil. It's all because uh, I always talk about the, the reason why a democracy asks for your vote is because that's your voice. We right. care what you have to say. We want your input, right. right? But if we don't, that means we don't care what you have to right, say, right, right. right? So who are the politicians listening to? The ones that have the voice, that have the ability to vote. So right. that evolves over time. More and more people have the, uh, right. have the right to vote. More and more people need to be listened to also. Right. And we will leave it at that.
Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you later.